This is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And the hoped-for future was a future of decarceration, as in the undoing of mass incarceration, which was enshrined by President Bill Clinton's crime omnibus bill, a bill strongly supported by Republicans and by Hillary Clinton, which may have cost her the 2016 election, resulting in Donald Trump becoming president. While many have been released from prison in recent years, that didn't happen in force until the COVID virus made landfall here in the U.S. back in early 2020. And that was far more due to public health concerns than any attempt at rolling back mass incarceration. In fact, during those first few months of COVID, we spoke with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, the harmful consequences of popular reforms, which features a forward by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. In that conversation, we discussed these so-called justice systems growing dependence on expanding uses our use of technologies of surveillance. There was, again, hope for many people being granted their freedom from prison and a possible overhaul of law enforcement in the entire U.S. criminal justice system in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd and the subsequent uprisings against deadly racialized police violence. But many of those promised reforms, promises made by politicians who were elected or re-elected, partly due to those promises, have gone unfulfilled. In some places, those elected not only did not fulfill their promises, but instead actually expanded police forces, as we have discussed here on the show in the past. But when it comes to that dependence upon electronic monitoring, many thought it was a step toward decarceration, an alternative to the brutal brutality and cruelty of prison. Not only that, it would be more cost-effective. As it turns out, it is expensive, not low-cost, as its supporters claim. Its high cost is passed on to those on electronic monitoring and their families. It's inefficient, unreliable, and in the end, it is not an alternative to incarceration, but an expansion of it. In a few minutes, we'll take a deep dive into what electronic monitoring of those released from prison is and what it is not when we'll speak with social legal researcher Jacob Kang Brown, co-author of the Vera Institute of Justice report, People on Electronic Monitoring, which he co-wrote with his colleagues at Vera, Jessica Zhang and Ari Kotler. Also joining us today is activist researcher and writer James Kilgore, who was uh, paroled from prison in 2009. Jacob is a senior research fellow with Vera's Beyond Jails initiative, exploring the use of incarceration across the United States. At Vera, he has conducted research on school discipline, status, uh, uh, status offense reform, policing and crime rates, hate crime, language access, jail and prison populations, charging and sentencing practices, electronic monitoring, and solitary confinement in prisons. You can find out more about the Vera Institute at their website, vera.org, that's V-E-R-A, and follow uh, them on X at Vera Institute. James is the director of the Challenging E-Carceration Project at Media Justice and the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program in Champaign, Illinois. He is the author of five books, including Understanding E-Carceration and the award-winning Understanding Mass Incarceration. You can find out more about Media Justice at MediaJustice.org. Follow them on X at Media Justice. Follow James on X at W-A-A-Z-N-1. And follow Jacob on X at J. Kang Brown. You can find out more about Jacob at his website, jkangbrown.org. Thanks to listener Cam, who posted in our Discord community, 
I would love an interview with any of the authors of the Vera Institute for Justice report on electronic monitoring the U.S. I think they'd make great guests. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how was your week? How have you been? Uh... Fairly busy, actually. Um, basically, I have been door knocking mostly. Nothing too exciting, but uh, once again, bring Chicago home, where pretty much we want to restructure that one percent real estate transfer tax to shelter homeless people. That's great. Uh, do you? Uh, what do you got? Any plans for the weekend? Are you doing any actions this weekend? Uh, nothing uh, planned ahead of time. The only thing I'm going to help out with, and I'm not the most electoral person, uh-huh. uh, but there's few people I. Put blessings on, uh, sarcastically speaking, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Graciela Guzman is running for Illinois State Senate against a corporate Democrat. So uh, she's a very grassroots campaign. Uh, someone I got to know on another campaign, I uh, like a local city council campaign I worked on. And uh, yeah, the real deal. Sure, family escaped El Salvador in civil war. She got active because. Uh, her grandfather died prematurely because he was undi- who was an undocumented El Salvadorian refugee and uh, someone who pretty much did great mutual aid work in my old neighborhood in Balma Craig and Hermosa and Avondale, so where I grew what's up. The, so. What's the what is she running for again? Illinois State Senate. In, for up here in this district? Uh, no, uh, the district that's uh, out on the west side. Yeah, north like westish, like Balma Craig and Hermosa. If you know the Chicagoland area, that's kind of the near west side. It's kind of where I grew up personally. So like, so canvassing and doing campaign work for her there is easy for me because I I want to there's there's a Polish population I'm bilingual in Polish and two I that's my old stomping ground so I was like door I was like last week I was like door knocking for her like right from my old grade school and did you run across old neighbors yeah actually my, my buddy's parents who never moved out of the old house oh that's crazy yeah, so that's awesome that was a little surreal but yeah it was pretty cool though yeah so in case you missed it on Valentine's Day Eve this week Julia Conley posted a story at Common Dreams that shows how a deadly myth believed by violent people across the United States is just Plain. Wrong. The headline is, Whole Blown in Good Guy with a Gun Myth in New Analysis. Which the headline writer must have thought was very clever. But a pun about gun violence and a story about debunking myths of gun violence is pretty poor taste. Nonetheless, Conley reports on the research that originally supported the good guy with a gun hypothesis. She writes that surveys in the 1990s, including a widely cited study by Gary Kleck and Matt Gertz, estimated that between 760,000 and two and a half million defensive gun uses occurred annually. But the Harvard Injury Control Research Center found two years later that fewer than 550,000 burglars occurred in gun owners' homes annually, which Kleck and Gertz had uh, estimated that guns were used for self-defense during burglaries approximately 845,000 times. The Harvard issue brief states burglary victims would have needed to use their gun defensively in more than 100% of cases, which is, of course, impossible. The National Crime Victimization Survey estimated just 70,000 such instances per year. They found that nine times as many people report being victimized by a person with a gun than being protected by a firearm. Respondents to two Harvard surveys taken in 1996 and 1999, so this has been known for a very long time, were three times as likely to report being threatened or victimized with a gun than having used one to protect themselves. So, in case you didn't know already, the good guy with a gun who is supposedly standing his ground is likely not a good guy at all or defending themselves in any way, but a bad person doing bad things and using both as a rationale to kill other people. And sadly, increasingly, doing so legally. 
Well, it's far less important than uh, the myth being busted again. Chris, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell comes from Garnett S., who left his suggestion at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Why do you why do you think we'll survive 2024? We included the why. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. You can direct message it to us via X at this is Hell Radio. You can leave your answer in our Discord community, or you can uh, leave it on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we will be announcing this week's winner following Dr. Sebastian Vupper, and a historian by trade who every week gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. Chris, what's Seb talking about this week? During the past inside the present, Seb, Seb looks at the chaotic period of mandatory Palestine during World War II and how events during that time led up to the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. So pretty light stuff. Coming up, electronic monitoring isn't the low-cost alternative to incarceration it's been made out to be. Chris will have our Discord community's answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on a very special bonus Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. As I said, Seb will have an all-new past inside the present. And following Seb, we will share the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announce who has our favorite answer, and Chris will tell us who our confirmed guests are for next week's show. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell, and the enforcement of the law seems to be a crime when it comes to the use of electronic monitoring. No, not a crime that's on the books, but a crime of expanding the cruelty of incarceration and bringing it directly into people's homes. Joining us so we can have a better understanding of electronic monitoring, social legal researcher Jacob Kang Brown is co-author of the Vera Institute of Justice Report, People on Electronic Monitoring. Let's welcome you to the show first. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. Also joining us today is activist, researcher, and writer James Kilgore, who was paroled from prison in 2009. Welcome uh, to the show, James. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Jacob, let's start with you. At the beginning of the report, it states that electronic monitoring is commonly used in the criminal legal system as a condition of pretrial release or post-conviction supervision, including during probation, parole, home confinement, or work release. The United States also uses electronic monitoring for people in civil immigration proceedings who are facing deportation. This report fills a gap in understanding around the size and scope of EM in the United States. When it comes to immigration, Jacob, has if immigration has, you know, uh, the amount of electronic monitoring in the United States has tripled, as your report has shown, is electronic monitoring of immigrants, is that what's driving the expansion of electronic monitoring more than anything else? Is the expansion or the increase in immigration to the United States, is that the major contributing factor in driving electronic monitoring being used in the United States? Um, thanks for the question. So uh, the that is not the factor. Um, you know, we see electronic monitoring growing in all parts of the criminal legal system. You know, local, state, federal, and then and the um, civil immigration side as well. And 
we've seen really rapid growth um, in people that are um, you know facing deportation or have some kind of open case with ICE. Um, that many, many people have been put on electronic monitoring in just the last few years. That program has skyrocketed. And some of that is due to technological change and the use of new kinds of surveillance and new kinds of technology for monitoring people. I just want to make sure that people understood that this isn't just a direct correlation to the increase in immigration because I'm I was afraid that people might be jumping to that conclusion. So James, the report begins by stating electronic monitoring or EM is a form of digital surveillance that tracks people's physical location, movement, or other markers of behavior, such as blood alcohol level. Now, I'm not too sure if people really understood that uh, electronic monitoring it tracks blood alcohol level as well. But James, is electronic monitoring like having a constant drug test? And is it accurate? I mean, we have seen how drug tests have been uh, had a lot of false positives in the past. So is electronic monitoring like having a, con a constant drug test? And is it accurate? Well, electronic monitoring is only used to monitor blood alcohol on certain kinds of cases with a certain kind of device that monitors alcohol content in perspiration. However, I think it's really important to recognize that electronic monitoring of all kinds is very inaccurate, that there are hundreds and hundreds of cases of people who are supposed to be under house arrest, who are whose device locates them outside their house when they're not outside their house and ends up sending them back to prison or to jail or putting further restrictions on them. This is why the Vera report is so important because it's finally beginning to give us the data picture that we need to point out that these devices should not be spreading, that they are that they are ina inaccurate, and we could spend that money much more effectively in programs that would keep people out of prison, out of jail, and off of electronic monitoring. So, Jacob, what to you, what explains this if, you know, electronic monitoring, as James was just saying, if it is inefficient, is, Jacob, to you, what explains this tolerance for such inefficiency when it's something as important as criminal justice? Yeah. So, you know, one of the key problems that um, drives the growth of electronic monitoring is that there's a real patchwork of jurisdictional authority. There's like no regulations about this at the federal level. There's very little um, oversight. And so um, this is also driven by private companies. So the private companies have these services. They want to expand and grow. And so they you know sell them to uh, local sheriffs, courts, things like that. And they push this as a solution to the real question about like, um, you know, what should happen if people shouldn't be in jail? And um, increasingly, these programs are used for people that would be released without any other kind of supervision. And um, we think that there's better ways to help people make sure they show up in court, reenter society, um, deal with like, uh, you know, the, the transition to getting back to jobs and workforce and connected with their families. And we don't think that electronic monitoring and increased surveillance really supports those kinds of goals. And so it, um, it's really just this kind of business kind of perspective that drives, I think, a lot of the growth. 
And as you were just saying, it's really important for people to realize that electronic monitoring, if, if you saw somebody with an electronic monitor on it, you'd think that, oh, this person is supposed to be in prison and this is just an alternative to prison. But as you were just saying, these people, uh, many of the people who were on electronic monitoring, they would have just been freed from any form of incarceration, including electronic monitoring, before the technology appeared. James, to you, what explains, you were talking about the uh, VERA report giving us a, the the better data picture of what's going on with electronic monitoring. And uh, Jacob was just talking about how there's no regulation or oversight. James, to you, what explains that uh, we didn't have a better data picture before? And what explains that it's seeming willingness by our by law enforcement and the criminal justice system to allow this to go unregulated without oversight? Well, I, I spent a year on an electronic monitoring as a condition of my parole. So I, so I think I begin to understand what the mentality is because the mentality behind electronic monitoring really is about enforcing different types of punishment. So one of the reasons why electronic monitoring expands is that if there's so-called an increase in crime, then putting people on a monitor gives law enforcement the ability to say, we're tracking these people. We're, we, we've got them under control. We know where they are. We're monitoring them. Don't worry about it. So it it removes any notion of accountability from law enforcement because they say they're already doing the best they can do apart from locking people up in cages. So I think really there's a whole punitive paradigm that informs incarceration, but that also informs electronic monitoring. Because in my research and in the people that I've talked to that have been on monitors, we agree, we we call this a form of incarceration. It's not an alternative to incarceration. It's an alternative form of incarceration. And as Jacob has pointed out, the technology is advancing. So more and more, we're finding that not only are people getting ankle monitors, but they're getting cell phone apps, which track not only their location, but their biometrics and other data. Let me just follow up with you on that, James, just for a second. You write that or you, uh, the report states, I should say, uh, electronic monitoring is commonly used to limit people's freedom of movement. So for you, how different is or was quality of life for the for you when you were on electronic monitoring? Are they simply sentenced to were you just simply sentenced to do your time in the comfort of your own home? And if so, you know, how bad can that be? I finished my six and a half years prison sentence. I didn't even know that I was going to be on an electronic monitoring with house arrest until I showed up at the parole office. Two days after I was released, I spoke to my parole agent, and he told me I would only be allowed out of the house from Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. That's a pretty big imposition on your freedom. And I think you, you, you referred earlier to Chicago, and I think Cook County is one of the has one of the strictest electronic monitoring programs for pretrial people who are on pretrial release in the country. And they've put hundreds and hundreds of people on 24-7 house arrest seven days a week where they even need a court order just to get out of the house to go shopping or seek medical assistance. So yes, the restrictions, as Jacob has pointed out, they may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but really what happened in Cook County, the, the biggest pretrial electronic monitoring program in the country, is part of what sparked the need to have more research and more information on this so we can limit the restrictions and limit its use. 
So, Jacob, uh, you write that in practice, differences between the criminal and civil immigration systems tend to dissolve when people are subjected to ICE detention as they are frequently held in local jails or functionally similar facilities dedicated to immigration detention. So is criminalization of even legal immigration increasing due to electronic monitoring? And, and even in the bigger picture, Jacob, does electronic monitoring lead to a greater instance of everything being criminalized in the world? Not just for immigrants who are maybe even here legally, but is, does it also just lead to a greater criminalization of all of our society? Yeah, I think the expansion of um, electronic monitoring and the rapid expansion um, of ICE's electronic monitoring indicates how there's so much capacity for um, further punishment um, in the U.S. And the deployment of EM on people that otherwise would not be in ICE detention or wouldn't be under certain kinds of surveillance um, is a real troubling trend. And, um, you know, I think when we look at across the country, you know, we see lots of jurisdictions. This is a, a technology that's still um, only adopted in some places, like New York City, for instance, has, um, I think there was only five people on EM over the course of a couple of years recently. Whereas in contrast, in Chicago, um, you know, it's like, uh, 100 out of 100,000 people are on EM in Chicago. And it's a huge sort of number as in terms of a rate. And so we think that something that is has a lot of negative potential to grow and get worse. And so we want to shine a light on it. We want to discuss it, make sure people are aware of it and, you know, are aware of ways to, you know, to push back on it. We think that um, people that um, have been pushing back on it have probably held back some of the growth in certain places. And I know that in Illinois, there's been a lot of work to limit the further growth of electronic monitoring. And so, um, you know, we see this as kind of like an unfolding um, dynamic where, you know, on the one hand, you have these businesses and groups that want to expand it and are trying to give it to, you know, put it on every single person who comes to the system in any way and expand their control and power over people. And then you have other people who have experience with it and are saying, this doesn't work. This isn't what we need in our communities. And it's a waste of our money. And we want to do something better. And Jacob, just to follow up with you, because James was mentioning how uh, it's not just electronic monitoring when we think about it as like those big ankle uh, like locks on your leg. Uh, there's also, as he was saying, there's apps now on cell phones. So, uh, so Jacob, how much is electronic monitoring an invasion of privacy? Can cell phone apps, for, for instance, that are tracking uh, people who are on electronic monitoring also get access to other information from their phones. You mentioned in the report about how it can be used as a surveillance uh, mechanism when the person is on electronic monitoring in their own family's homes. So how much is this an invasion of privacy? Because it would seem like this would be, I would think, unconstitutional. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen certain people, you know, have sought to, you know, argue that it's unconstitutional in courts. And there's been various cases and some of them have been able to win, you know, those arguments that this is an unconstitutional invasion of privacy. Um, the surveillance of the cell phone apps is a real problem. And a lot of that data 
that's collected, you know, these are people that aren't convicted of a crime that are on some kind of like release while their case is pending. And to have all that information collected and stored and then, you know, stored on the database of a third party business as opposed to a um, government agency is a major invasion of privacy. And those businesses often retain the data in a way that like does not respect people's um privacy and like allows law enforcement to get it um, whenever they want. You know, they sort of have this kind of like open relationship with them. We were discussing the inefficiency of uh, electronic monitoring earlier. Uh, James, when you were on electronic monitors, were you ever a, a victim of false alarms? And what happens to those who are on electronic monitoring when those false alarms ring for law enforcement? Um, I, I was a victim a couple times of, 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 of false alarm on electronic monitoring. I had someone show up at my house, a parole agent, claiming that I was on uh, Highway 57 at a certain time when I didn't have permission to be there. But I think what happened to me was very minor compared to what's happened to some people who have hundreds or at least dozens of of false false alerts. And if you look at the data compiled by for, for example, Matt Chapman and an organization called Tribe in Cook County, they've tracked down really thousands of false alerts. And so, in fact, Cook County authorities get so many of these false alerts that they don't even know which ones to respond to. So it's kind of random in terms of what they actually follow follow up on. But, I mean, there are stories about people being reported in the middle of Lake Michigan, when they're on an electronic monitor, when they're when they're sitting at home, if you look up an individual called Mohawk Johnson, he he was on a pretrial electronic monitor in Cook County, and he had so many violations that he started. He put a video camera in his home, and he videotaped all the phone calls between him and the uh, pretrial authorities where they called him and said he wasn't at home, but he had a videotape showing that he was at home answering the phone calls that they, that they put, that they, that they sent him. So it really, it does vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but I've never talked to anybody who's been on electronic monitor who said it worked a hundred percent. And we have to ask why don't, why doesn't this work as well as the GPS on our cell phones, which generally works fairly well, but the answer really is people who enforce this don't really care. This technology is not tested. As I point out in one of my articles, a, a toaster gets more product testing than an electronic monitor. So we really have no data at all that shows the results of the testing or the results of these devices when they're actually put into place. That is just that's just wild. I, uh, Jacob, you write that indeed the experience of people on EM showcase the emotional and physical ter uh, terms of the technology. 2021 survey of nearly 150 people supervised on ankle monitors by ICE found that 90% experienced pain or discomfort related to the devices. As James was just saying, it just seems like they you know, people don't care. They just the people who are applying these electronic monitoring, they don't care if it makes somebody uh, gives them a false positive when it comes to being somewhere where they're not supposed to be. It, it, they just it just doesn't seem like they care. Is there any indication that companies that make EM, Jacob, and the criminal justice system that employs them cares, even if it's 
painful? Does that pain fall under cruel and unusual punishment? Is this another, what could be another violation of constitutional law? Is that the intent? Do you think that's the purpose? They don't care. And so if it's painful, too bad. That would be speculation on my part to speak to what they right uh, motivations feel right, their yeah. motivations on that. You know, I I can see you know I can speak more to the research that we've seen. You know, other people have done that. Like one in five people on um, EM ankle shackle ankle monitor devices experience electronic shocks. Um, you know, that's a lot of people, and um, there's all kinds of impacts. We see that. Um, and, you know, using this technology that's rife with defects um, often involves, you know, sort of exploitation, too, like shifting costs onto people um, that have the devices on them, and they and their families have to pay for them often. Um, and so this is all sort of about, like, creating harm. And we think that that's, uh, you know, why we think of it as another form of incarceration, basically. So, James, do you think uh, the public is even aware of these problems with electronic monitoring? How aware is the public, in your opinion, that EM is much like being in a cell when law enforcement can, where uh, law enforcement can just enter whenever they want to and search whatever they want? And if they were aware, do you think it would even make any difference? It seems like the public is pretty cold and callous when it comes to treatment of people in the criminal justice system. Well, I think in the last decade, we've had a we, we've had an amazing sort of mobilization against mass incarceration, which has really raised the, the public consciousness about some of the ways in which this system penalizes people, particularly targeting black people and other people of color. But I think this report on electronic monitoring by the Vera Institute has really consolidated all the, the very limited critical research that we have, but it's really listed the various harms that electronic monitoring does to people, the financial harm, but there, there's also the, 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 the trauma of, have, of being watched all the time and never knowing if this device is going to malfunction and you're going to end up back, back, in, back in jail or prison. So the, getting this data out there is a way to pressure authorities Toward some kind of accountability for the impact of their of their devices, and that's why this research is so important. Ten years ago, I tried to do Freedom of Information Act requests and so forth, getting information from authorities. I could get very little. I had to rely on the other source of data, which is the lived experience of people who've been on a monitor, which is very important. But we need both of those, and I'm I'm really grateful to the Vera Institute for taking almost three years to gather all this data and to kind of twist the arm of law enforcement to at least give us some measure of statistical accountability so that we can move on making some changes and making sure that the harms that are caused by this are greatly reduced. So, Jacob, is that lack of transparency that James came up against when he was doing his research, uh, the, the lack of transparency, which the Vera Institute in this uh, report has been able to get that information to the public. But how much do you think, Jacob, is that uh, is that tr lack of transparency driven by the fact that electronic monitoring so is so dependent upon privatization when it uh, comes to the creation of electronic monitoring. Do you think that this lack of transparency is driven by that privatization? That intersects with it. I think there's another part that is it's relatively new. 25 years ago, there were very, very limited electronic monitoring programs. 
you know, everywhere had jails and prisons then. And so there's federal data collections about jails and prisons and other kinds of incarceration, but there isn't one that has like a dedicated focus on electronic monitoring. And because these programs operate, um, you know, sometimes it's a sheriff that runs a pretrial program. Sometimes it's a court system that runs an EM program. Sometimes it's a prison parole board that runs it. And so it's all across the, the criminal legal system that we see these programs. And so it's not so easy to collect the data on it. And it took us a lot of work to do it. Um, and I think that we're hoping that this is a model for others who would want to kind of implement this kind of data collection in their county or in their state, or even if the federal government would pick this up, um, we think that would be useful. James, why do you think it's so popular here in Chicago and growing increasingly popular in the South? Is it just all about the bottom line of being too expensive to house inmates? Is that is this due to city and county budget concerns, or do you think it's the bottom line might be the, mo the biggest contributing factor, but do you think it's maybe more than just the bottom line? Well, I think it's more than just the bottom line. I think, it, as I mentioned before, I think it's about the mentality that informs electronic monitoring. The mentality that informs electronic monitoring is the mentality of monitoring people, controlling people, surveilling people. It's not the mentality that we expect, say, from traditionally from parole or probation officers whose job was not to try to catch people violating the rules and regulations of parole and probation, but was to provide them with access to employment, access to counseling, access to medical treatment, to provide a pathway for them to return to the, to the community successfully. But instead, probation and parole officers, most of them now, they carry guns. They're armed. They're, you know, they're, they're on the hunt. They're not out to support people. So electronic monitoring is just another way of tightening the screws on people. This is the mentality. And I think Although we can blame the private companies, somebody has to contract with these private com companies. So why why aren't local government or, or local authorities or the Department of Corrections, why aren't they contracting with people that provide services that actually provide benefits from people for people, that keep them out of prison and provide them with job training or other things that can that can give them a more successful life path than being locked in a, in a house with a, an electronic device. So I think we have to ask questions. Why do you go and hunt for an electronic monitoring company instead of going to a company and saying, won't you employ 30 of our people who are on parole and, and, and give them a job and make sure they can have a, a satisfactory income and career? We are speaking with social legal researcher Jacob Kang Brown, co-author of the Vera Institute of Justice Report, People on Electronic Monitoring. And also joining us today is activist researcher and writer James Kilgore, who was paroled from prison in 2009. James is the director of the Challenging E-Carceration Project at Media Justice and the co-director of First Followers Re-Entry Program in Champaign, Illinois. He's also the author of several books, including Understanding E-Carceration and the award-winning Understanding Mass Incarceration. So, Jacob, um, 
Despite there being victories when it comes to activists who are opposed to electronic monitoring, as uh, James was saying earlier, your study found that there is a wide range of agencies at the state and local levels using EM, leading to a patchwork of jurisdictional authority. EM is an unregulated and privatized sector. Users end up paying large shares of the fees and technological charges or changes are leading to rapid growth. So, Jacob, despite whatever victories anti-EM activists are having, is EM still expanding? And without that activism, would it be even far worse? Yeah, we do see expansion. Our data runs through, um, you know, 2021. We collected that and saw that the EM population had grown fivefold from 2005 to 2021. Um, and during that same time, you know, we're seeing there's like a downward trend among incarceration overall. So jails and prison populations were declining even as EM is growing. Um, and as we stop the data collection and move towards the report writing, we notice that the ICE population was dramatically increasing. And, it, you know, the number of people um, that were on electronic monitoring through um, immigration um, authorities and ICE it tripled from, you know, over 100,000 to 360,000 in December 2022. You know, we see that overall across the country, best estimate we have is it's almost half a million people that are on some form of electronic monitoring. And this is while, you know, the total number of people in local jails is just over 600,000 people. So it's like, uh, you know, getting to be quite a huge share of the criminal legal systems. And so that's a real um, troubling trend. And we think that efforts and advocates to sort of reduce the use of EM and to push for change in this area are really essential. We hope that like more people will continue to do that. As the re- James, as the report states, uh, those supervised on EM uh, report difficulty in complying with vague and overlapping rules and an inability to obtain approval for day-to-day tasks such as attending religious services, grocery shopping, and dropping their children off at school. So, James, how dependent does someone on EM become on the help of others, families and friends? Do their, do their families replace the prison staff? Do they become something akin to prison guards? Does the responsibility for the incarcerated person's quality of life fall on the family? Because that that sounds a lot like health care here in the United States under neoliberalism. And that is, you are on your own, as Tessie McMillan uh, Cottom said on our show years ago. So, James, does EM shift the burden from the state to the family when it comes to providing care for the incarcerated, as so much of the burden has been shifted from the state to the family? Absolutely. That's part of what that's part of what's happening here. And as Jacob has pointed out, in in many jurisdictions, not Cook County, but many jurisdictions, people are forced to pay a daily user fee and then they're on house arrest. Becomes very difficult for them to get out to even get to a job interview, let alone go to work. So the family is now forced to shoulder the financial responsibility. Plus, you have another traumatized individual living in in an under-resourced house. Because make no mistake about it, the majority of the people who are incarcerated in the U.S., the majority of the people in who are uh, on house arrest are pe- are poor people. They they're not in they're the the you know the classic is Martha Stewart on her 51 acre ranch and she's on house arrest. Well that's not where that's not where most people are living. They're living in already overcrowded under-resourced 
places and having somebody who's stuck in there all day worried about whether or not they're going you know the parole or probation is going to show up and cart him away that's a huge that's a huge st stress on people so there's no doubt that this is a shifting all kinds of burdens from the state to the, you know to the to the household and we so in our in our research and I just want to point out uh, I'm not doing this research for um, for community justice exchange. I work for we did the research for media justice for several years, but we found all all kinds of stories, not only from the people who were on the devices, but people who had loved ones who were on the devices, saying that you know that, that they were under stress. They felt that they were they were also being watched and being tracked because of what was happening to their family member. Jacob, the report states that violations of any of the conditions of EM, failing to pay EM fees on time, the fact that there's EM fees is disgusting, uh, uh, pay, failing to pay EM fees on time, forgetting to charge the battery or engaging in behavior the supervisor officer deems problematic, can be punishable by incarceration, making EM a tripwire back into jail. So following up on what James is saying, Jacob, it, do you think EM is meant to punish poor people more than rich people is em uh, far more of an or far more of a convenience for the wealthy is em in your opinion maybe a product of white supremacy or at least white privilege yeah i mean i think the growth of electronic monitoring really shows that you know i think uh, a lot of people do think of like very rich people getting out of jail or, you know, often with a federal criminal charge that are like, you know, getting a house arrest or something that, you know, someone like with a fancy lawyer that got them off. And the massive numbers of people that we've been able to see on EM show that this is really uh, much broader than that. And that it is very likely that um, it's like the rest of the criminal legal system, which um, is mostly poor people that are involved in it. And um, so we don't have the specific data to speak exactly to what's going on there. I think that it's obvious that it's um, exploiting people further. Just to follow up on that real quick, Jacob, you also, uh, the report also states that uh, there's consistent research on the rapid expansion of the community corrections industry, fueled by rising numbers of independent for-profit providers of EM, uh, probation, and other forms of community supervision. Some of those providers are huge. Geo Group is a private prison company that also uh, operates BI Incorporated, the single largest EM provider in the country with 385,000 people on EM, almost exclusively under contract for ICE. So as people may know, Geo Group has had a very controversial past. It has been the subject of civil suits brought by prisoners and their families for injuries due to riots and poor treatment at prisons and immigration detention facilities, which it has operated. As this is electronic monitoring and not prison, is GEO any less likely to poorly treat those that they serve in prisons and instead have them wearing electronic monitoring? Does this make a, a prisoner who is now on electronic monitoring any less subject to poor treatment from GEO? I mean, I think that GEO has various roles in this process, you know, like as a business, they like provide often the technology and the devices, but it may be that it is a public agency that's doing all the supervision or the sort of monitoring of the actual people. So, you know, the staff involved may not work for GEO. They may work for your 
local county or for your state. And so, you know, I think that the these things are really interwoven and it is centrally a public problem, even as there are like private businesses like Geo profiting off of it. So, James, uh, the report states that the privatization also breeds opportunities for corruption. In 2018, a watchdog group in New Orleans, a jurisdiction that relies heavily on private EM vendors because it lacks a publicly administered program, uncovered a pay-to-play scandal when a local judge repeatedly ordered people to be monitored by a campaign contributor's EM company and threatened them when they did not pay their fees. These scenarios reveal areas for further research, focused not only on the impacts of industry giants, but also on locally run EM companies. In doing your research, James, uh, what did you see as the impact on criminal justice when it came to this kind of corruption taking place? What happens to criminal justice when it becomes corrupted by privatized electronic monitoring corporations? Well, I think as that particular incident points out, that is a partnership. That's a public-private partnership, right? You have a public sector judge partnering with a with a campaign donor to, you know, to carry out this, this, you know, totally illegal, totally immoral punishment of people. And, you know, and, and so it's, 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 it's a collusion. It's, 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 it's systemic. So, and, and it, it's very different in different locations because um, although BI may be the largest provider, there are dozens of providers across the country who have local contracts, and each one of those contracts has different conditions and is paired with different uh, law enforcement. Uh, and although ICE is the biggest contractor, you have a lot of counties and states who also are contracted with other corporations who are what I call carceral conglomerates. That is, they're not only doing electronic monitoring, they're doing other kinds of contracts for the criminal legal system, for the prison industrial complex. So you have Securus, for example, a big electronic monitoring provider, which also provides prison phones, which also provides video visits for, for prisons. There's uh, a, a number of these companies that are involved in a whole range of, of prison contracts. So this is a this is a den of, 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 of corruption in a way, but I think that also speaks to why we have so little data on this, because they're not trying to have their operations see the light of day, because there's a lot of things that would come out in terms of the way these things are being operated, as the people that we have interviewed and people who have experienced this technology can tell you, there's a lot of things that that would not stand closer scrutiny, and that's part of why we have a an electronic monitoring regime, which is somewhat under wraps. But I think it's also fair to say that the criminal legal system as a whole is fairly secretive in terms of how it operates. Jacob, you write in the report that although most of the country's major urban areas have long become reliant on EM technology, Many smaller cities and rural communities are still in the early stages of EM usage and weighing the advantages and disadvantages of EM programs. Notably, several of the smaller mid-sized counties that Vera uh, contacted said that they had ceased the use of EM altogether due to pitfalls with the technology. Officials explained that EM was costly and burdensome to administer, subjecting them to a huge amount of liability. Why would that be felt more in smaller cities and rural areas and not as much in bigger urban areas? 
I do think that there are some urban areas that have seen, uh, you know, the the pitfalls of EM outweigh the benefits they assess, you know. Um, but smaller cities, there's a maybe a sense that like it's expensive and not worth it um, because uh, people have tighter connections or like kind of understand that people aren't going anywhere. If you have to have some private company install these devices and that person is not local, like they might have to drive hours to come install it. And so it could be just uh, very inefficient. You know, if the devices break and you need to replace them, and it's uh, a real hassle. But we saw that also places like Salt Lake City or Portland, Oregon, also reduced EM use recently. I think Portland is a particularly useful example because people there sort of approached this from a racial justice perspective and that, you know, they saw that there was major disparities um, in the use of EM and found ways to reduce the use of it um, and cut the numbers of people and limited the use of the devices. I think that it's uh, it can happen across the board. And I think that's something important to emphasize is that like, even though we see a lot of growth in this, there are places that are kind of getting it right and um, ending these programs. So, James, uh, in, as the report states, in many jurisdictions, EM is not used as a mechanism for reducing jail populations or overall carceral control. Rather, it is often a crucial component of highly punitive, deeply entrenched criminal legal systems. This challenges the dominant narrative that EM is an alternative to incarceration. Instead, it reveals how the role of EM in the criminal legal system is highly variable and subject to political decisions at the local level. James, do you think that this might be, EM might be even a kind of blowback from the criminal justice system against the idea of decarceration? Is this, uh, you know, faux decarceration? Is this an attempt by the criminal justice to suggest that, yes, we are uh, supportive of decarceration when in fact they are using it to expand incarceration. I, I think that's I think that's part of what's happening. I, I, I don't think I, I think what the point that Jacob makes repeatedly though is that it varies very much from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And I, I do want to point out that you know the places like Portland that he's targeted that have reduced the use of this. Part of that has been because of activism on the ground, and in particular because people have discovered the racial disparities that have been taking place in terms of who's on an electronic monitor. You know, black people in particular have been disproportionately targeted by mass incarceration. And this is part of the the, the mystery of the data of electronic monitoring is that we don't have hard data on the racial composition of who's on electronic monitoring. But the few places we do have data, whether that's Chicago, whether that's Portland, whether that's San Francisco, whether that's Los Angeles, whether that's Indianapolis, we find that black people are disproportionately punished through electronic monitoring in the same way that it happens in in jails and prisons. So I think, I think we need to keep that in mind and recognize that jurisdictions are different. And until we have a bigger picture, until we have federal and state authorities actually gathering data and recognizing the importance of this data and being held accountable for the implications of this data, we're really not going to be able to say exactly what's happening other than to hear from people who are directly impacted who tell us over and over again that this is punitive and they don't think there's any benefit to it. I still have one more question for each of you. We have been speaking with social legal researcher Jacob Kang Brown, co-author of the Vera Institute of Justice Report, 
People on Electronic Monitoring, which he wrote with his colleagues at Vera, Jessica Zhang and Eric Hotler. We are also speaking with activist, researcher and writer James Kilgore, who was paroled from prison in 2009. He is the author of several books, including Understanding E-Carceration and the award-winning Understanding Mass Incarceration. So first question is for you, Jacob. Um, our final question, just so you know, our final question that we ask each and every one of our guests, we call it the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. That's usually where it falls because people are just horrified by what some people's answers are. Not that they're bad answers, but the truth that, that is revealed is horrific. So for you, Jacob, our question from hell is, as argued by immigrant advocates in a 2021 report, border communities are the test subjects for surveillance everywhere. So is what we are seeing being done to immigrants what we all will be facing soon, because this reminds me of how way back in 2008, historian Alfred McCoy was on our show, and he explained to us how the use of drones in the Iraq war would soon be used against citizens back here in the United States, that whatever war technology is used abroad eventually does come home, as we're seeing in, you know, these police fusion centers that have surveillance systems directed at local communities, similar to the ones used to fight terrorism, essentially swapping out terrorists for community members. So, Jacob, our question from hell for you is, will poor treatment of immigrants soon be the poor treatment used on U.S. citizens? I think that uh, speaking specifically about the smartwatch expansion, like this is the kind of thing that like, uh, you know, I think ankle monitors, ankle shackles have become more controversial in recent years as people see them as like uh, very harmful. These companies have moved to using um, watch-based devices and they think that they're better and they've piloted those. They developed pilots um, with them, this new technology for um, immigrants. And we see that now rolling out in the criminal legal system. Forts in Ohio are now using these devices and we expect that to kind of grow. So I do think that this is, um, I agree with that kind of assessment that it's like being piloted first among immigrant communities and will likely expand elsewhere. So James, our question from hell for you is, first of all, I want to apologize for my question from hell for you before I even ask it. Uh, James, if I was completely heartless and just wanted to make a quick buck, do you think electronic monitoring would be a good investment? I think what we've seen historically is that mass incarceration is a good investment. That's why we have something called the prison industrial complex. And what we're seeing now is the expansion of mass supervision, which includes electronic, which includes electronic monitoring, but which includes a whole bunch of other so-called alternatives to incarceration that are both that are punitive and profitable. So that's what that would be anger management classes, that would be drug courts, mental health courts, a whole range of these of these supervisory technologies, which I, I do want, I do want to say there's a there's a tendency to say this technology and this surveillance is going to ex expand to all of us. It's not all of us that get impacted by this. It's targeted populations. It's disproportionately people of color. It's disproportionately poor people. And although everyone may be surveilled, the consequences are very different for people who are caught up in the criminal legal system than for those who happen to download 150 apps onto their phone and get tracked by 
75 different corporations and get bombarded with ads and so forth. Those consequences are a little bit different. And I think we need to make sure that we recognize that it's targeted populations of poor and people of color who are disproportionately impacted by all methods of surveillance and technological control. And it's the expansion, again, as I was mentioning earlier, and as both of you were, too, it's also the expansion of criminalization in general. We have been speaking with social legal researcher Jacob Kang Brown and uh, activist researcher and writer James Kilgore. Uh, check out the Vera Institute of Justice report, People on Electronic Monitoring, at the website for Vera Institute, V-E-R-A dot org. And you can follow James on X at W-A-A-Z-N-1 and follow Jacob on X at JKang Brown. Uh, you can uh, find out more about Jacob as well at jkangbrown.org. Thank you both so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating report, and I really appreciate you both being on the show. Whenever you have more work coming out, please contact us because we would be honored to have you back on the show. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Live from the United States, where demands for decarceration somehow led to greater incarceration. Yes, this is hell. If you learned how terrible the whole idea of electronic monitoring is, as it now exists is, from our guests, Jacob and James, today, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On this week's very special Patreon podcast, which goes live sometime early Saturday afternoon, February 17th, the interview we will be sharing is an interview with the person who counterpunches Nick Pemberton, said is the greatest current public intellectual. And no, it's not several time past guest Noam Chomsky. It's somebody by the name of Chuck Mertz. Hey, that's me. So this is Fundraiser February, when our home station at WNUR-FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, is having its annual phonathon fundraiser. And one of our affiliates, CKUW-FM, uh, Independent Community Radio, out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, is holding what they call their annual Fun-Raiser. Last year, CKUW's Scott Price interviewed me for the Fun-Raiser, and we're doing it again this year. And the only way you can hear that interview, and it's completely unedited in raw form, will be if you are a subscriber to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell so if you want to hear me discussing the importance of local independent commercial free community radio with scott of ckuw in winnipeg you gotta be a patreon subscriber also on patreon patreon patients can ask me a question from hell a question that i have no idea of what it is until whoever is producing that patreon podcast asks it to me or of me i should say twice in the last several weeks i've been asked you know questions like What's the worst interview you ever did? Who is the guest you disliked the most? And both times, the exact same answer came up. Hands down, worst interview we have ever featured on our show was with someone whose name I'm glad I cannot remember, but was from something called the Boring Institute, which has no relation to Elon Musk's scam, The Boring Company. No, The Boring Institute person we spoke with, whatever their name was, was about the they talked about the problems of things being boring, as in not interesting and tedious, unless our guest was engaging in some form of postmodern theater or performance art. They were easily, by far, hands down, the most boring 
and worst guest and the worst interview that has ever happened on our show. Of course, who would want to listen to a bad, boring interview? But it does have one redeeming quality, and that is, it's really short. Why? Because the producer at the time, Chris Bigosinski, was rightfully screaming in my ear via talkback saying, hang up on this guy. But the only way you can hear me be interviewed by our affiliate in Manitoba and the worst interview and guest we have ever had on the show, again, remember, it's short and it's brutal, it's kind of funny in retrospect, is by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Chris, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding in our This Is Hell Discord community? This week's question from hell comes from Garrett S., who left his suggestion at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page, why do you think you will survive 2024? We included the why. <laughs> and so in our Discord, some of the answers we do have, one is from Hugh, who wrote, for the question from health suggestions, not an entry for this week. We are, what are you bringing to the, what are you, what are you bringing to the This Is Hell Bake Sale? <laughs> so that's his suggestion for a question from hell. Okay. Didn't have an answer for the question from hell. Instead he had a suggestion. That's fine. Okay. okay. Next. And then Kim G wrote, vibes. <laughs> this one's kind of entertaining. Mark A wrote, why? White privilege, baby. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that is not good. And then wow. uh, Cam wrote, because I because Cameron because I sold oregano as wheat to Toby Keith and now his ghost won't let me die. <laughs> and thanks, Cam, for suggesting today's guest. Uh, and then Hugh wrote, Moxie and blackmail. <laughs> now that's a good answer to the question from hell right there. So that's kind of all we got for Discord for the for now. Okay, so we will come back and we'll have more of your answers to the question from hell. Uh, we are going to have the ones that were just posted at the Facebook page, not the Facebook group page, but we'll also find uh, follow up on any stragglers that might still be out there. The person with our favorite answer, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell merch. You can find it all right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And now... Dr. Sebastian Vupper, uh, an historian himself, who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. One of the things I like to counter here on Past Inside the Present is the notion that history, or progress for that matter, proceeds in a linear fashion, that certain things are inevitable, that certain developments always proceed towards some point of resolution or fulfillment. Most prominently in this context is for me the notion that African-American history began at the lowest point of perpetual chattel slavery and from there proceeded ever improving, bending towards emancipation, liberation, and equal rights. Happy Black History Month to everyone who's celebrating, by the way, but that's not why, uh, why I'm here or where I was going with this. In this ongoing series, um, which today's segment is a part of on the history of Zionism and the history of Israel, it could come across like an inevitability that the state of Israel would be founded as the end point, the triumphant conclusion of the Zionist movement, and that Zionist history ends there. 
But that would be far from the truth. The foundation of the state of Israel in the way that it took shape was by no means inevitable and by no means an end point. After all, Zionist history is still continuing and unfolding today. If it was triumphant, depends on one's perspective. Uh, but to properly understand how the first Israeli-Arab war happened in 1948, the war which ushered in the existence of the state of Israel, we need to look at the utterly chaotic period that preceded it. Creating a Jewish nation-state had, of course, been the declared goal of the Zionists from the outset, and the focus of most of their efforts. During the first 40 years of the 20th century, the Zionists had facilitated the growth of a substantial Jewish population in Palestine. There had, of course, always been Jews living in this place, but in the late 1930s, most of these Jews now had European backgrounds. If you recall, the British administration of the Mandatory Palestine uh, sharply curbed Jewish immigration to the region in 1939 in order to quell unrest and conflict with the native Arab population. At the same time, most other countries around the world also shut their do doors to Jews fleeing the Nazis in Europe. Looking at you here, United States, this meant that European Jews were now effectively stuck as World War II broke out. As Britain entered the war on September 3rd, 1939, the Zionist leadership of the Jewish community in Mandatory Palestine wholeheartedly supported the British effort. Only small splinter factions of the more extremist groups among the Zionists continued to hold strongly anti-British positions and continued anti-British actions. The Zionists' calculations were that if they both in word and deed supported the British side in the war, the administrators of Mandatory Palestine might ease the immigration restrictions and allow for a larger number of Jews to escape the terror of the Nazis. And here I need to again step very carefully, because at the heart of this is indeed the true tragedy of the whole issue. The Zionists always had a legitimate reason for the positions they took. Um, it's just the problem, the, but the way they went about them to, you know, alleviate the, the, the reasons, the things that happened to their people. Now, after six years of Nazi rule and increasingly horrifying oppression of the Jews of Europe, more so than ever, um, again, the Zionists did not, not a single time that I can find in the literature, welcome the Nazi atrocities as a sort of push factor that would benefit their project. That was never, ever how things worked. However, things are more complicated. Controversial Israeli historian Benny Morris stated that these efforts were actually less uh, due to a desire to save Jewish lives and more due to a fear that if the Jews of Europe were destroyed entirely, the Zionist project in Palestine would be doomed to failure. I am not sure how much truth there ultimately is to that. Morris does cite his sources and it, it it does seem that there is at least some truth to it, but I cannot really say how widespread this position was among the Palestinian Zionists. Morris is something of a weird character. He started out as a new historian of Israel, meaning someone who looks at Israeli history with a critical eye, uses more recently declassified archival materials, and does not shy away from calling genocides and ethnic cleansings by name. However, Morris changed his tune following the outbreak of the Second Intifada and has since been critical of his former new historian colleagues like Ilan Pape and Avi Schlein. So I am conflicted putting his depiction of the Zionist project up like this without mentioning him being a complicated, controversial historian in more than one regard, but that historian infighting is just a side note. The Arabs in Palestine, of course, were, much, were in a much different situation. They traditionally opposed the British as foreign occupiers and colonizers, and this did not change with the war. 
Instead, some Arab leaders openly supported Nazi Germany, the Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini, being one of the most prominent such supporters. The Nazis seemed to make for a good ally for the Arab cause. They also, in the first years of the war, seemed to actually have the upper hand and the capacity and capability to de defeat the British and to kick them out of the Middle East. The Arabs also regarded the Brits as the guardians and facilitators of the Zionist project. The Germans and their Italian brothers in fascism promised that the Arab countries of the region would become independent once they helped in overthrowing the British occupiers. But the Arabs siding with the Germans was not because of uh, them being susceptible to fascism or due to their admiration for Hitler. That support simply came down to the hatred towards the European colonizers in the region that Germany fought now, especially Britain and France. The Mufti of Jerusalem declared a fatwa against Britain in 1941, just as the Anglo-Iraq war broke out. The Brits fought against Iraqi Arab nationalists using a combined Palestinian force that fielded both British and Jewish units. During the war, the Jewish leadership in Palestine organized their own Zionist army units. The British had since the mid-30s been providing expert military training to Zionist paramilitary organizations in Palestine. The result of this was a fairly large and well-trained Zionist army called the Haganah, the Defense Force. This further proved to the Arabs that the Zionists and the British were aligned against them. Ben-Gurion summed up the Zionist position regarding Britain, saying, quote, We will fight with the British against Hitler as if there was no white paper. We will fight the white paper as if there were no war. Remember, the white paper of 1939 was the British resolution for mandatory Palestine that laid out the strict immigration restrictions and prohibited further land acquisitions by Jewish people in the region. Only the latter restriction, however, was meaningfully enforceable given the situation on the ground. Various Jewish and Zionist organizations maintained a somewhat steady but altogether quite small influx of illegal immigration during the war years. Jewish leaders, Zionists and otherwise, I should say, met at the Biltmore Hotel in New York in May of 1942, where they passed a resolution declaring the desire to create a Jewish state in Palestine after the war. This, this state would need to be large and independent and primarily Jewish, and more importantly, Jewish-controlled. Jews could not agree to be in the minority in this, in this proposed state again. The Mufti of Jerusalem, meanwhile, proved to be a long-term problem for the Palestinian Arab cause, and he in some ways is until today. During the war, as mentioned earlier, he loudly allied himself with the Nazis after the Arab defeat in the Anglo-Iraq War, during which he had been in Baghdad. Uh, the Mufti then fled to Germany into political exile, and there he allowed himself to be used by the Nazis for propaganda purposes. The Mufti's actions raised British ire against the Palestinian Arab cause, and that would result in painful consequences in the post-war period. The Zionists had supported the British while many Arabs flocked to the Axis power banners when it came to fighting. After the end of the war, the British did not forget this. In March 1945, seven Arab nations signed a pact that created the Arab League. A representative of the Palestinian Arabs was present and acted as an official delegate. However, Palestine only became an official member in 1976.
The Arab League's 1945 Alexandria Protocol stated, quote, the question of these Jews, meaning the European Jews afflicted by the horrors of the Holocaust, should not be confused with Zionism, for there can be no greater injustice and aggression than solving the problem of the Jews of Europe by inflicting injustice on the Palestine Arabs, end quote. Post-war leadership of the Palestinian Arabs had difficulties re-establishing itself. Eventually, the Husseini clan prevailed, of which the Mufti of Jerusalem was the most prominent member. The Husseinis are essentially a Palestinian Arab noble family who trace their lineage back to Hussein ibn Ali, the grandson of the Prophet. In 1947, members of this family had re-established their leadership over the Arab community in mandatory Palestine. The white paper and the ongoing war had kept a relatively tight lid on the situation there, but now that the war was over, the tensions started to rise up again, and quickly. On the Zionist side, the Yishuv, the political Zionist leadership of the Jewish community in Palestine, also re-emerged. They had gained military experience in the war, fighting alongside the British. The leadership had also spent considerable efforts during the war to amass arms by stealing them from British arsenals or by buying them on the black market. The Haganah had established elite strike force units called Palma. And towards the end of the war, the armed Zionist units, who at this point were effectively paramilitary terrorists, resumed their actions against Britain and Palestine. A years-long terror campaign against British targets followed, which was officially decried by the Yishuv leadership. The British responded with crackdowns and retaliatory strikes, in which Jewish civilians were killed, which only further incited anti-British sentiments. The British, meanwhile, debated endlessly about how many more immigrants to allow into the region. They formed another committee, because they just love forming committees, um, in 1945 to determine how to proceed. It was mainly composed of British and American diplomats. The American delegation of this committee was particularly impressed with what agricultural improvements in Palestine the Zionists presented them with. Comparing the efforts of those um, to those of American pioneers and the Haganah to the Continental Army of George Washington. Uh, the committee then essentially rejected a partition of mandatory Palestine into Jewish and Arab lands. If Palestine was to be independent, both Arabs and Jews should have a part in the state. 100,000 more displaced persons, so meaning Holocaust survivors, should be allowed into the region. Even so, the violent struggle of the armed underground armies resumed against British targets. In February 1947, the British then finally pulled out of the negotiations and handed the issue of Palestine to the newly founded United Nations. British rule over mandatory Palestine was crumbling, and the Brits lacked the will to fully re-engage. The Zionist terror campaign against the British also began to incur a quickly rising body count. The Zionists also fought with increasing viciousness. In July, they captured two British officers and hanged them publicly, and leaving their booby-trapped bodies displayed out in the open. The British retaliated by indiscriminately firing into a Tel Aviv shopping street. Later in 1947, the United Nations, after long deliberations, agreed that unlike the British before them, they would favor a partition plan for Palestine. The votes in favor came down on predictable lines. Arab nations, Cuba and India voted against British Commonwealth states, the United States, um, Western Europe, 
the Soviet Union and Latin America, uh, Latin American nations voted in favor. The partition heavily favored the Jews who would receive more than half of the region. The Arabs walked out of the meetings stating that partition would mean war. Their words were backed by agreements forged earlier among the Arab League nations. The Arab nations positioned armed units alongside the borders of mandatory Palestine in response. Ben-Gurion and the Zionists, meanwhile, had put efforts in motion to transform the underground army of the Haganah into a regular army. And that set the table for a catastrophe to occur in the Middle East, what in Arabic would be called Nakba. More on that next time. If you want to read more on this history, today's segment was primarily informed by Benny Morris's 2001 book, Righteous Victims, A History of the Zionist Arab Conflict from 1881 to 2001, and Avi Schleim's 1990 book, The Politics of Partition. That made me uh, remember conversations that we had with Uri of Neri back in the aughts and I think in the teens as well. Uri uh, was a peace activist in uh, Israel, but in, earlier in his life, he fought alongside Ariel Sharon in the Irgun. He was part of the terror campaign that was taking place against Palestinians. And he's just a really fascinating person because he went from somebody who was a devout Zionist and somebody who was committing terrorist acts in is in uh, the territory in the area at that time mm. uh, for the Zionist cause to somebody who went to being completely on the other side and hated within the Israeli uh, community and by the Israeli government. He was a member of the Knesset at one point. Uh, hmm. So yeah, we should start. We should share those interviews because Uri was always an amazing guest. Uh, Heavy accent, so you might want to read the transcript. But, you know. So, Sebastian, how are things by you? Uh, snowy. <laughs> Today? Yeah, yeah. I opened the blinds this morning and I was like, really? This again? <laughs> uh, it had been really nice and warm for a couple of weeks, but now I guess winter is, is back, which is, you know, appropriate. It's still winter, uh, but yeah. The lake effect is hitting you like crazy. No, yeah. All right. Take care, my friend. Yep. 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 Will do. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hal. Chris, what is this <laughs> with this week's question from Hal? And please remind, uh, please remind us what it is and tell us how our listeners are responding on Facebook. Yeah, so this week's question from Hal uh, comes from Garrett S., who left a suggestion at our Welcome to the Hell Facebook group page. Why do you think you will survive 2024? We included the why. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So we um, we got maybe like a uh, two extra ones. Okay. From Welcome to the Hull. All right. Uh, one is from Kwafka Smith. Despite my enemies. <laughs> That's good. And the other one is uh, I didn't survive 2023. <laughs> That's a good one too. And uh, let me see if we got anything on the regular Facebook page, like you know, outside of the Hull. Yeah, guess yeah. I'd say. Uh, there's one by Jess. The end of this is Mister Not. Creditors can't get their pound of flesh if I'm dead. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, so is that it for this week's question from Hal? Uh, yeah, that looks like it's it. All right. So the answers I like the most were on Patreon. Nasrafej saying I ducked at the right moment as far as why does he think he's going to be surviving 2024. Greg saying uh, my life insurance is less than two years old. Josh saying I think I'm going to survive 2024. Therefore, I am going to survive 2024. Tom H saying naivete. Neil C saying intestinal fortitude. Essential saying a firm handshake from the manager. 
Justin M's reply was my stockpile of bootstraps. I did like Terry T's uh, response saying I didn't survive 2023 and Kafka saying to spite my enemies. Jeff says he lives in Australia and guns are highly regulated, so he believes he will survive 2024. Jen says I have to because I have I don't have any sick days. Zuli said on Facebook, who says I will survive 2024. Kim G, I liked her answer. Vibes, Mark A, Y, white privilege baby. And Hugh saying moxie and blackmail. Do any of those really stick out to you, Chris? Uh, I like the bootstraps. Survive 2023 is pretty good. But uh, the white privilege baby made me laugh really hard. (laughs) It made me laugh really hard, too. So I hate to say this because Mark A has already won in the past. But Mark A, you are the winner of this week's question from L. Again. Please contact us, send us an email, tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, or just come over here during office hours and I'll give you something. Congratulations. My answer to this week's question from hell, why do you think you will survive 2024? The assumption here is that I do think I will survive 2024. Hell, if I'm going to jinx myself by assuming I will survive 2024, hell, I was absolutely certain back in 2022 that I'd survive the year. That I had made all sorts of plans. There's all all these things I was going to do. Plans that were all canceled because I nearly did not survive 2022 as I was given a 60-40 chance of surviving several major injuries and surgeries. So why do I think I will survive 2024? My answer is, who says I'm going to survive 2024? Chris, who are our confirmed guests for next week's This Is Hell? Blogger, journalist, and science fiction author Cory Doctorow will be on to talk about his Financial Times article, Enshitification is coming for absolutely everything. The term describes a slow decay of online platforms such as Facebook, but what if we've entered the Enshitocene? <laughs> I'm really looking forward to having Cory on the show. And he may be coming back in July to talk about his novel. Who else is on next week? Uh, Amy Cooter is returning to talk about her new book, Nostalgia, Nationalism, and the U.S. Militia Movement. Amy is Director of Research, Academic Development, and Innovation at the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, Terrorism, Extremism and Counterterrorism. Thanks to Chris Coolfan for producing today's show. I am your bit of line broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. This is Hell Office Hours. Remember, they happen every Wednesday at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. It's our weekly Wednesday meet and greet that's really a drink and think. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood every Wednesday, no matter the weather. And again, for everybody who does listen to the live stream or the podcast, Uh, We are airing Tuesday through Thursday next week, as I think we're going to be doing it the next week after that, too. So, yeah, for two more weeks, Tuesday through Thursday shows. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.